0: It's the fourth book in your Bible, so if you go to the very beginning, go all the way to the left in your Bible. Um, hopefully, you'll find the table of contents, and then um, find the book of Levit or the book of Numbers, and then we're in chapter sixteen, verses one through forty, as we continue our study in the book of Numbers. So, one of the great Commandments all, all of the ten commandments, I guess are great, but one that 's often neglected is the fifth one: Honor your father and mother. I mean we talk about murder when we talk about you know stealing and bearing false witness and all those things quite a lot but, but but honoring your father and mother is one that is often neglected, and we may even wonder why in the world do we have that as one of the top ten and uh, there are probably a lot of reasons, and it 's not our it 's not the place this morning to go into. Um, and exegete the fifth commandment in great detail today but let me do let me offer this one suggestion and that by honoring our father and mother we should recognize that our father and mother is really the first authority structure that an individual ever encounters it is the first authority that a child encounters and who needs to obey and with the Breakdown of the family and with the um, the laxadaisical nature of families, people, children today oftentimes never learn to honor father and mother, and hence never learn to honor authority and we see, and we are bearing the fruit of that today. so with that, uh, let me just note, I think one of the great sins of our country, I should say one of the great idols. That's much better. Perhaps our greatest idol of our nation is the idol of personal autonomy. That is the idol of independence. We fought a war for independence. I'm not anti-independence, and I am not anti um, personal autonomy. I'm just saying that even good things can become idols. And I think that this is certainly one of our great idols. And when we idolize personal autonomy, we tend to disregard authority. And ultimately, our ultimate authority is that of God and a rejection of God. is a, a rejection of God's ordained authority, is a rejection of God himself. So, just with that introduction, let me, um, and as that as a way of introducing where I hope to, to go a little bit today, let me remind you, and just by way of review, where we have been as we've been studying in the book of Numbers. One of the, the, the areas that we're in or one of the sections that we're in, in the book of Numbers is this rebellion cycle. It started in chapter 11 and it is this, um, it's just constant griping and complaining. Have you noticed that? Chapter 11 all the way Well, it's going to keep going. We're not through the the rebellion cycle yet. This rebellion cycle yet, but they just constantly complain. Whether it's like we don't like the our dietary variety. I wish we had different food. We don't like our authority. We don't like you, Moses. We don't like. We just don't like anything. We're just mad. We're upset. Ultimately, this is a gripe and a complaint against God Almighty. this cycle of rebellion continues. So where we're going to go today and where I hope to, to to direct us today is we're going to see that the position of Moses and Aaron, the authority of Moses and Aaron is attacked by a very large and influential group within the community of Israel. In other words, they're going, they're going to ask basically, who made you the boss of me? I guess that would be a, a common way of putting these theological issues. Who made you my boss? We're going to see that ultimately in order to maintain that argument, in order to maintain that statement, in order to maintain that you are not my boss, that I have the same calling and the same task as you, in order to do that, the people are going to have to twist God's word. They are going to have to twist God's word in such a way that they will end up denying the goodness of God's gifts to his people. They will twist God's word so that God's goodness to God's people is no longer recognized. And in fact, the authority that God has given them in Moses and Aaron is going to be despised. And it's going to be because they twist God's word. And let me just note this, that twisted scripture produces a twisted mind and that results in death. Twisted scripture results in a twisted mind and that is the, the natural result of that is death. So we will see that. We're going to see this questioning of authority. They're going to do so by twisting the scripture, which is ultimately going to lead them to a twisted conclusion and ultimately lead to death. That's where we're going today. I hope that is somewhat clear. Um, If not, then hopefully as we go along, it will be made more clear. So if you will, follow along with me in Numbers chapter 16. I'm going to read our text today. It's chapter 16, verses 1 through verse 40. So listen to the word of God. Now Korah, the son of Itzhar, Son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, the son of Abiram, I'm sorry, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of people from Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses, against Aaron, and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show you who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah, and all his company, Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, "'Hear now, you sons of Levi, "'is it too small a thing for you "'that the God of Israel has separated you "'from the congregation of Israel "'to bring you near to himself "'to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord "'and to stand before the congregation "'to minister to them, "'and that he has brought you near to him "'and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? "'And would you seek the priesthood also? "'Therefore, it is against the Lord "'that you and all your company have gathered together.' What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offerings. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, be present, you and all your company before the Lord. You and they and Aaron tomorrow, and let every one of you take his censer and put incense in it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also, and Aaron and his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation." And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among the congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their face and said, O God, the God of all, of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses arose and went, To Dathan and Abiram and the elders of Israel followed him, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby, you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly, and all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, and they said, "'Lest the earth swallow us up!' And fire came down from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense." Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying to tell Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze. Then scatter the fir- fire far and wide, for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. For they have offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. Thus shall, they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. So Eliezer, the priest, took the bronze censers, which those who were burned had offered and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar to remember to the people, to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who's not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company as the Lord said to him through Moses. And this ends the reading of God's inerrant word. Well, let me give you a bit of a setting and it's, uh, as we see up here, we have these two camps, if you will, will, these two um, individuals, well, actually three, but two groups. We have Korah and he's going to complain. You should note that he is a son of Levi and Korah's, Complaint really is going to come against Aaron and his priestly authority. So Korah is going to gripe about Aaron and his priestly authority. And then we have this other group, Dathan and Abiram. We also see this person by the name of On, but we only see him mentioned in the very first part of the chapter. So many biblical students think that because we don't see On listed anywhere else, perhaps On came to his senses repented, and he is no longer listed as one of the rebels. I pray that is true. But we see this other group, Dathan and Abiram, and they're opposing Moses' civil leadership. So we have two groups that have kind of joined forces as one, and they're complaining, and they are opposing two different authority structures, Aaron's authority as a priest and Moses' authority as the civil leader. That's a general uh, breakdown of what's going on in this chapter. You should also note how influential Korah and uh, these two groups are, because they influence a large number of the people of Israel. Is what it says, and in fact, we're going to see two hundred and fifty chief men leaders of uh, of the of the uh, of the nation, and so these aren't just I don't know. This is not just a rebellion on the fringes of society, but rather it is influential people. Cora is a big time player in the uh, in the community, and he influences a whole lot of people who come against and oppose both religious and civil leadership Now, one of the things i having given you that bit of setting, let me just tell you a little bit about how the text is structured today. So it's structured just like any good movie producer, right? They they focus on a scene, then they move to another scene, and then they come back. We're going to see that today. We're going to see that Moses, as he writes this, he focuses on Korah, and then it moves and changes. The scene shifts to focus on Dathan and Abiram, then it shifts back to Korah. So I just want you to note that the scene is going to shift back and forth between these two um rebellious groups. Um, so anyways, that's a basic setting. And from here, I think we can begin to unpack what's going on in our text today. So let's deal with Korah and Korah's assault. Let's deal with that first. Korah's assault on Aaron. Um, and, and it begins with this. You've gone too far. This is Aaron's first complaint. You have gone too far. In other words, you have overstepped your bounds. You have not stayed in your lane. You've gone way too far. In fact, literally, it says you have too much. Probably you have too much authority, too much power. You've overstepped. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? There's the charge. You've gone too far. You, you have now exalted yourself above the assembly of the Lord. there's the complaint, there's the attack, that's the assault, there is the issue. In other words, you are self-appointed, you have placed yourself above everybody else and you've gone too far. Who are you? Who made you the boss of me? And you should note at this point the charge is against both Aaron and Moses but the issue at hand, as we're going to see as we go through, it's all about Aaron's priestly um, functions and so um, while Moses and Aaron are both indicted by this charge of going too far and exalting themselves, ultimately we'll see by Moses' response that this is all about Aaron's authority as the priest. Remember, Korah is a Levite. So he's part of this priestly group, but as a Levite, well, as a Levite, he doesn't function as a priest, but he is a, a of the tribe of Levi. Anyways. There we are. There's the assault. I want you to note how this assault is rationalized or how it's made or what gives it its weight, what gives it its believability. After all, everything, you know, if you make a charge, it has to be somewhat believable. And here's what Korah says. He says this. Did you you pick this up when we read it? You've gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So here's the charge. You've gone too far. Who made you the boss of me? Don't you realize we're all holy and God is with all of us? That's the reasoning. Here's the problem with the argument or that rationale. This is a, a, a common error and if, if we can understand this, I think we'll be, become better um, interpreters of the Bible. Because here's the problem. What Korah has done is he has stated one truth to the exclusion of all others. He has stated one truth to the exclusion of all others. It is a true premise with a false conclusion. So here's what's true. It is true that the entire group is Holy. Don't you know everyone is holy? That is an absolutely true statement. Exodus chapter 1945 says that you are a kingdom of priests, a royal, you're a kingdom and a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. That is absolutely and utterly and completely true. You are holy. And in fact, we saw at the end of chapter 15 last week that all of the congregation were to make tassels and 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 put a blue thread. It was to indicate that they were holy to the Lord, that they were priests, that they were nobility, that they were um people of rank, and that God is in their midst. And so Korah is making a true statement. We're all holy. That's true. But this high calling does not translate into all of us having the same function or even the same status or responsibilities before the Lord. We are all, they are all holy, but that doesn't mean they all do the same thing. Not everybody offers sacrifice. Not everybody carries the holy objects. Not everybody um, can strike a rock and bring water out of it. Are you holy? Yes. Are you Moses? No. What we would say about this then is that in essence, as the people of God, there is no distinction. They are, there is equality there, but as far as their function, there is a difference in what they do. Now, there's a fancy term for this, so let me just throw it out there. And Arvid, if you're listening, um, we call this complementarianism. Um, It just means complement. That is, that people function in different ways, but they complement one another. And we shouldn't be surprised. So in other words, we might define it this way. We are equal in essence, but different in function. We should not be surprised by that. Number one, it's very clear in Scripture but it, it flows out of God Himself. It's not like, a, you know, we just make it up. God Himself is a triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in essence, different in function. Let me ask you in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who's most important? Don't answer. That's a trick question. It's not a trick question because I know this church would answer it you'd all say, you can't answer that question. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God. But if you look throughout Scripture, you will see that they all do different things. A great place to see this is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. God predestined us from before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us from before the foundation of the world to be His. Christ purchased that. Purchased us by his blood. And the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. Let me tell you this. The Holy Spirit did not die for your sins. And Jesus Christ did not predestine you from before the foundation of the world. And the Father does not seal you for the day of redemption. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all God... And they have a different function. Equal in essence, different in function. This is the very nature of the triune God. Even Jesus himself says, I submit to my Father. And he then sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus then sends the Holy Spirit. I'll send the Holy Spirit. He won't come until I send him. And so we, we have this mutual Authority and this mutual um, equality in, in essence, but we have them all doing different things. Praise God. If there isn't a Trinity, you are not saved. It's just the bottom line. So, we should not be surprised to see this complementarian idea because it exists in the triune God, and then in his very first um, create in the very first institution, if you will, his very first relationship is that between husband and wife. Male and female. Equal in essence, different in function. My wife is not a little lower than me as a woman in regards to her relationship with Christ. She is fully and completely a child of God. She probably more righteous than i not probably but we are equal in essence but but here's the thing we're different in function and let me just say this we're probably going to get deplatformed from this simple statement but we're different in function men do not have babies did you hear that mark zuckerberg Men don't have babies. They just don't. It's called science, biology. We are equal in essence, but we are different in function. So we, we reflect God. The family reflects the very triune nature of God. Father, mom, children. Children are equal in essence, but we, they are different in function. So are husbands and wife. So the family reflects the very nature of God. So we aren't surprised by this. And and even in the church, the church we see this equality in essence, but different in difference and function. There are two offices in the church: elder and deacon. That's it. And as one of the elders of this church, um. I have a different function than those who are not elders in the church, but I am no more Christian. I'm not nearer God. It's not like He has some. Spe- it's not like I have some special privilege. I actually have greater responsibility. It says those of you who teach have greater responsibility, and that's a frightening thing. It's a burdensome thing, not burdensome in a bad way, but it's a weight. But we are equal in essence. If you are a brand new believer, if you confessed Christ a second ago, we are equal in the sense of being brothers and sisters in Christ and children of the Most High God. Saved by the same grace and the same blood. I may have been a, a little in this uh, life a little bit longer than you, but I am no more superior. So here's the problem. They've twisted the scripture and, and they've said, listen, we're all holy. So they, they, they exalt one passage of text to the exclusion of all others. And by the way, this is what every cult does and what every false religion does. They, they pick out a scripture and then they just hammer it to the exclusion of everything else. See, you have Korah, who is a Levite, but he wants to function as a priest. He's not a priest. He's a Levite. He's been, and his tribe or his family group, his clan, has been commissioned to carry the holy things. And so, as I said, this is a tactic used by every cult, every false teacher, every false teaching, probably has this at its root. When we think about just the turn of the last century, um, when we see the rise, and we see it today also, the rise of what was called the social gospel. This came out of um, kind of Darwinian thought and the fact that um, the people had rejected miracles and had rejected the supernatural, kind of enlightenment-type thinking. And then, anyways, I don't want to go into all the history of that. But once you do away with all of the miracles and the supernatural, what do you have left? All you have left are good works. That's it. So feed the poor. Well, we should feed the poor. We should take care of the needy. We should should welcome the downtrodden. We should lift up the downtrodden. We should take care of uh, those who, who are in need. You should just know that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And I'll go into a little bit more detail about that. But what the social gospel did was it took the commands that dealt with feeding the poor and exalted them to the exclusion of saving souls. And we see similar things today. Well, that's what's the charge. Uh, and it says that in verse 4 when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. I'm going to assume that he fell on his face to pray, but I just Couldn't help, as I was reading this, thinking Moses ducked. Man, lightning's coming down and I'm I'm getting out of the way while I have a chance. This is bad. That's just my own... Maybe I've twisted. It's my twisted mind. And then he responds. And he says, God will reveal who's chosen. What a great thing. He leaves this issue to the authority of God. I'll let God deal with it. God will reveal who is chosen. If you want to be a priest, then function as a priest. Here's how priests function. They get censers, which are like things you burn incense in. So go get your censers, put fire in them, put incense in them, put fire in them, and bring them before the Lord. If you want to be a priest, then function as a priest, and God will determine who is his. Now as soon as he says bring incense in your censer this should have struck fear in every single one of those individuals. Every single one of those people should have been like falling on their face repenting because not too long previous to this event less than a year prior to this event there were two people and they were priests. priests Not just Levites, priests. Their names were Nadab and Abihu. And they offered strange fire to the Lord, and the Lord snuffed them out. He took them out because they offered unauthorized fire in their censers. So now Moses is saying, bring censers. You're not even priests. You have no authority whatsoever if you want to to do this. But if you want to be a priest bring a censer filled with incense and bring it before the lord every single one of them should have been fearing and trembling for their lives and then um well but i want you to note this god's word has been twisted and now men's lives are in peril did you get that God's word has been twisted and now men's lives are in peril because when we disregard the word of God, we end up removing the boundaries between the godly and the ungodly and this results in anarchy. That's what's going on here, anarchy. We're all chiefs. Everyone is then doing right in their own eyes. Moses concludes his appeal or his test to them by saying, Korah, it is you who've gone too far. Korah began his assault with Moses and Aaron you've gone too far Moses said no Korah it's you who've gone too far you're the one who's overstepped you're the one who has too much you have too much pride and too much arrogance and then he says this is it too small of a thing is it too small of a thing um, that um, that God the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation to bring you near to himself this is what god has done to you cora he has separated you and allowed you to come near to him and 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 serve him in a capacity that really nobody else is allowed to serve him in and in a relationship and a nearness that is uh, unique to you is that too small a thing that you are allowed to come and 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 present yourself to God and serve your brothers and sisters before the Lord? Is that too small a thing? And now you want to be Aaron also? Are you dissatisfied with what God has done in your life? Is too small a thing that he has allowed you to carry the holy things? Remember the tribe of, uh, or the clan of, of Korah, their job was to carry the holy things like the tabernacle well, not or like the, the Ark of the Covenant and the table of showbread and the lampstands and they would cover them. They couldn't even look at, at them, but they were privileged to carry these things. This was in service to their brothers. If somebody, somebody had to carry these things and Korah, Moses presents this as a privilege to come near to the Lord. God has given you a privilege function. Faithfulness to him will bring him honor and will be fulfilling. But the problem with Korah is that he desires honor for himself and not for God. Why do you seek what has not been given to you? that That's the general tenor of what Moses is saying. And I think perhaps maybe a, our great one of our great New Testament examples is in First Corinthians chapter 12. Well, really, also in, in Romans and Ephesians and in First Peter, all which deal with spiritual gifts. But one of these things we see, especially in First Corinthians 12, which speaks of the body of Christ, which is an amazing metaphor for the church. Just an amazing metaphor because it talks of interdependency. Remember, we are not independent. We are interdependent. And I think that's a, a crucial thing. But, but Paul goes on and, and he talks about Um, the body of Christ in in, in such a way that um, we are in need of one another. And he says, so um, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And the body doesn't consist of one member, but many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that that would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And then it says, and the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. So you can't say, well, I, I have no purpose because I'm just a lowly member in the body of Christ, nor can you say, I have no need of you. This is what's going on. And and Cora and is saying, I want to be something that I'm not. I want my own glory, and I I don't care about my my brothers and sisters. And God says, or Moses says, it's not against me that you're sinning, it's against God, because God's the one who called you to this. I mean, the body, equal in essence, different in function. Toenail is part of the body. The eye is part of a body. You might say, well, I'd rather have, you know, be missing a toenail than missing an eye. Well, that might be true. But nevertheless, the the toenail functions in a very, very important role. I've lost toenails. It's not always pleasant. But it doesn't matter. We, We need one another. And God has given us different functions. But we're all equal in essence. The eye can't say to the toenail, well, I have no need of you. We need every part of the body. So that's kind of what's, what's going on. Well, now let's shift over to Dathan and Abiram and look at their assault. And uh, what arrogance. They completely refused to meet with Moses. They, they've rejected his leadership. They said, we, uh, Moses has come up, I think probably to the tent of meeting. And they said, no, we're not coming up. And when I look at how they deal with what they say next, the only thing I can surmise from this, and maybe this isn't politically correct, but I think it's true. And so let me, I'll just put it bluntly. Sin makes you stupid. And we probably all know that because we've all sinned and we're going, that was stupid. Because look at what they said. Did you pick this up when I read this? Verse 13, it is a Is it a small thing, notice they're repeating Moses' words, is it a small thing that you've brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey? Did you get that? You've brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey. What are they saying is the land flowing with milk and honey? They're saying Egypt is the land flowing with milk and honey. Like I said, sin makes you stupid. They were slaves. But Pharaoh is our master. You're a horrible master, Moses. You brought us out here to kill us. Pharaoh is a better taskmaster, and that is the land flowing with milk and honey. They have completely, this is what sin does it completely reverses everything. And it makes your bondage that which is desired. You've been delivered from this, and now you say, no, that's actually the land of milk and honey. So that's the first thing that they do. But notice this, and this is so typical of really all sin, and there's blame shifting. Do you see it? Moses is the barrier to the promised land. You brought us out here to kill us. Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey. You have not given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. And will you put out the eyes of these men? It's really kind of the idea of, will you pull the wool over these people's eyes? Will you deceive these people any longer? You're the problem, Moses. Blame shifting. Because just... A little while earlier, it was because the congregation rejected the words of Caleb and Joshua and refused to enter the promised land that they did not go in. Dathan and Abiram, and, probably, and more, most likely, and the remainder of the congregation said, nope, we can't go into the promised land. The reason they're not in the promised land is because folks like Dathan and Abiram said, no, we can't go in. There's giants in the land. There's well-fortified cities. They're not kept out of the promised land because of Moses, but because of their own sin. And what they do is they blame shift and they say the problem is Moses, who had nothing to do with that. We should not be surprised that sin produces a blame shifting because we see it in the very first sin. What did Eve do? She blamed the serpent. And what did Adam do? He blamed his wife. It's not me, it's her. And she says, it's not me, it's the serpent. I got nothing. I'm just kind of minding my own business. And all this stuff happened. Blame shifting. And so... Sin makes them stupid, so they don't, don't even know. They, they reverse the, uh, the blessings of God, and they place the burden on, really, on God's faithful servant, Moses. So, and then Moses uh, prays against them. This is kind of, kind of interesting because it's the first time we really see Moses praying against them. And he said basically that they would have no part in the sacrifices that make access to God possible. So I just pray you cut them off. They have no access to you. And then Moses asserts his integrity. I haven't taken even one donkey from them. Moses may not be a perfect man, but he is a man of integrity. He has not used his position to enrich himself at their expense. So now we've seen the first assault from Korah and from um, Dathan and Abiram. We shift back to Korah. And basically, um, Moses says to Korah, come before the Lord tomorrow. Verse 16, be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. Man, this is grace, isn't it? The Lord's providing time for them to consider their actions. Perhaps this is when On jumps ship and says, man, I don't have anything to do with this. But I wonder what's going on in Korah's mind as he's lying in bed that night. Is he so blinded by his sin that he actually thinks God is okay with what he's about to do? That he actually thinks that I'm going to come before the Lord with all of these people, with our incense, and God's going to be going, man, I'm glad you came, Korah. Man, you're awesome. I don't know what's going on. Like I said, sin makes you stupid. But notice also this. Um, and let Moses said, be present, you and all your company before the Lord, and let every one of you take a censer. So every man took a censer and put fire into them. They came to the tent of meeting. Then verse 19, Korah assembled all the congregation. Notice what has happened. It started with Korah and 250 men and some other influential men, but chorus sin has now influenced the entire congregation. This is what sin does. And then we have these very ominous words, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. In other words, God came down. And God says to Moses and Aaron, Get away, unless the fire. Um, unless you be swept up in my fury. And then here's the amazing thing. Moses and Aaron fall on their face and intercede for these people who have despised them. I would have probably been praying something different. But Lord, th- this sounds just like Abraham, doesn't it? Lord, would you destroy the whole congregation for the sin of one person? Remember when Abraham did that on, with, with, with Sodom? It's like, would you destroy the whole town of Sodom if there's 50 righteous people? And he whittles it down to 10. And by the way, they couldn't find 10 righteous people. And so Moses and, and, and Aaron intercede on behalf of these just horrible people. Protect them, save them. And then God extends his warning to the entire congregation. This is more grace. Basically, he says flee. Flee from the wrath that is to come get out, don't touch anything that belongs to Dathan and Abiram, don't touch anything that belongs to Korah, just get up and get out because otherwise you will be swept away in my wrath. So God extends his warning now to the congregation and then we see, uh, we shift back to Dathan and Abiram, Moses and Aaron go to their tents. Remember, they wouldn't go to the tent of meeting. So now Moses and Aaron go to their tents and basically warns everybody get away from their stuff the land is going to consume them don't you find that interesting what was the their complaint against going into the promised land they said if we you know the the land will devour us and now the land is going to devour them it will literally devour them They rejected God's promise. They said, God brought us out here to kill us and the land will devour us and now the land is going to devour them. And it does. It actually consumes them and then just a brief statement and then fire consumes the 250 men with their incense offering. So two things. Ground opens up, swallows these folks alive, 250 men Consumed, and God had told, "If you're nearby, you ought to run for your life. Just get away." So, and then we see that just these censors. Now they're still there, lying on the ground. Now dead men lying next to them, um, and they become they actually become set apart. And it is a reminder that God is holy. They became because they were offered before the Lord. They actually became holy. And uh, they were fashioned into plates over um, over uh, um, the furnishings there as a reminder that the Lord God is holy. So every time they came, they were reminded that God is holy. God gives us a reminder. He gave us a reminder today in the Lord's Supper. So let me make a few gospel connections here because this is not just simply a story that happened a long time ago and it's unconnected or unrelated to any other parts of the Bible. So let me give you just a, some, some gospel connections. And the first one, uh, the first gospel connection just has to do with salvation. I, I talked about this a little bit. The congregation has spared God's wrath by hearing and obeying God's word. The congregation has spared God's wrath by hearing and obeying God's word. Get up and flee. You will note that there is no plan B, there is no other option, there is no negotiation. Well, you know, God would, there are other ways to flee from his wrath. I know that me and God have worked something out and we've got another way. No, God said flee. If you are going to be saved from his wrath, you're going to have to do exactly what he said. If you don't, you will be swept up. In his fury, there were not numerous options to be saved. There was no room for negotiation. We today are commanded to flee from the wrath of God. We are th- to flee from the wrath to come. But we are not just to flee in random, just run out into the field somewhere. We are called to flee to Christ. If you are going to flee from the wrath to come and be saved, there is only one place to be saved, and that is found in Christ. For he has taken the wrath and fury of God upon himself. And if you are in him, that wrath has been born, and you will be saved. If you are outside of him, you will be swept up. And you cannot say, well, there are other ways, or let me negotiate an alternative plan. There is no alternative plan. You can come up with alternative plans, they just won't save you. So flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to Christ, who is our anchor. He is our, 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 our safety. He is our, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to Him and are saved. And so how does this happen? Well, we're going to come to the Lord and repent of our sins. He says, repent and believe the gospel and repent that we have sinned. But we just don't turn. And repentance has this idea of turning from sin. But we don't just turn from sin. We do that, but we turn to Christ. So it is a turning from and a turning to. I turn from my sins and I turn to Christ who bore my sins on Calvary so that I might not suffer the fury of God's wrath to come. That's what I'm doing. And if you are here today and you've never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, I would just urge you, I would urge you, flee from the wrath to come. And you may think, well, I got time. Well, maybe you do. I don't know, and neither do you. You don't have a side deal with God. And the Bible is very clear, very clear, there is one way. Second, gospel connection has to do with the body of Christ. There is this myth, and we talked about this a lot when we were in the book of Acts, but let me repeat it here. It doesn't hurt to repeat things. But the church is not some unstructured leaderless group. The church is not some unstructured leaderless group. And I know that sometimes, uh, I don't know, we get all hippie and think, oh, it's just this, you know, we all just kind of hang out and God just kind of we just kind of do our thing and, and God is there. This was a big deal in the emerging movement what you know what maybe a decade ago or two decades ago the emerging movement but it's we see it often and we even see some denominations that, that simply like well we just there are no leaders there's nothing we just all have the holy spirit. There, it is true that we all have the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You have everything you need for life and godliness. That is absolutely true. We are equal before the cross, but it is faulty in the said if we want to establish one truth through the exclusion of others. God has called leaders for his church. It's very clear in scripture. God has called You to, and remember, God has called you to his church. You may not be an elder or a deacon in the church, but God has still called you to his church to be a blessing to others and to serve others. Just like Korah, he was supposed to, his privilege was to serve the entire community, the entire nation. And God has called you also to be a blessing to others. And there's a variety of ways of doing that. Some are really prominent. Some we don't see so much. All of them are necessary. And I say this a lot. There's all sorts of things that have to happen just for this little simple church service to happen. The way it does, all sorts, of, lots of unseen things, right? All sorts. Body of Christ. And the second, and then the third, uh, gospel connection has to do with worship, and we talk a fair amount about this. It, here, um, and that is that we are not to worship God however we please. We do not approach God in whatever way we deem appropriate. And we look around, and there are examples of just utter silliness that goes on in churches. Pastors zip lining in and Driving in on motorcycles and Rolls Royces and, you know, I'm, I'm, good, I'm all for a good illustration. But the church service is not a circus. And a good illustration goes a long way. But I think times we go way too far. So we do not worship God however we want. We come to him through his son, Jesus Christ you are not in Christ, you cannot worship. You can attend a worship service, Mm -hmm. but you cannot worship. And so we seek to approach God in the manner in which he has made known to us. And we're so grateful that he has said that you can come boldly before the throne of grace. You do not need to be a pastor or an elder or have any rank in the church to come boldly before the throne of grace. What a great privilege that is. You do not need to be, quote, somebody in the church. Again, if you are a brand new believer, five minutes old in the Lord, you have equal access to the throne of grace as much as the greatest saint who has ever lived. God doesn't say, well, stand in line, get to the back of the line. No, come my son, come my daughter, let's hear from you. What a joy it is that you've, entered and come into my presence I will in no way cast you out so think about that salvation the body of Christ and worship there are probably many other lessons but um, we will uh, we will end with that so if you will join me in prayer father we are grateful this day that you've given us your word I thank you for the book of numbers what a rich and valuable book it is it's easy to miss the blessings that you have for us here so be merciful to us, Lord God. Grant us favors. we go from here. I pray that we'd bless one another, that we would engage with one another, that we would serve one another, that we'd fellowship with one another, have lunch with one another, have coffee with one another, encourage one another in, God, in your word, admonish one another in your word. Be faithful to what you've given to us, Lord God. I thank you for this church. It's a good church. I thank you for the people here and their willingness to serve. Lord God, keep us. From harm and from attack of the enemy and from ourselves so be gracious continue to be gracious to us we ask in Christ's name amen if you will stand